guest today is running for judge of a youth court here in Mississippi. Her name is Jennifer Siegel Harris. Jennifer is a Biloxi native who has practiced law for over 20 years, primarily in cases involving juvenile issues. Those issues range from representing the interests of the child in a situation such as a broken home to criminal cases, custody battles, and also divorce. Through her private practice, Jennifer has also confronted issues of bankruptcy. All told, she has experience across the entire spectrum of familial issues affecting children, including the financial burdens families go through. Her representation of clients in youth courts has given her a breadth of experience rarely matched in the entire Gulf Coast, especially for somebody running as a youth court judge. She isn't all work, though. She's a community-involved mother and a wife to a captain in the Ocean Springs Police Department. As a result, she has a unique perspective of juvenile issues from those responsible for policing a community. And Jennifer and I talk about that perspective. We talk about her ideas for a more robust youth court as well, given that perspective. Through our conversation, I gain a better understanding of how our youth courts work, the challenges they face, and the opportunities which exist. I am thrilled, someone of her background, with her motivation is taking on the pressure of, of candidacy in such a sensitive court. I'm confident she'll do an amazing job. I'm even more confident that you're going to enjoy this episode. Everyone, please welcome Jennifer Siegel Harris. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Shop and Chivalry podcast. I'm here with my guest today, Jennifer Siegel Harris. How are you? Good, thank you. Excellent, excellent. Now, uh, had you on because you're running for youth court judge, yes? Correct. In Jackson County? Yes. And just Jackson County? It is just Jackson County. Okay, wonderful. Just well, Jackson County. Let's, let's start with you, okay? Who is Jennifer? Oh, um, <laughs> okay. So I have been a practicing attorney for 24 years. I've spent the majority of that dealing with child welfare and juvenile justice uh, situations, um, both in Jackson County, Harrison County, as well as in Hancock County. Um, I'm originally from Biloxi, been here all my life, went off to school and then came right back home. Didn't go very far. Okay. Um, I'm a mom, a wife of 27 years now. Wow. And um, just am very passionate about... Uh, families and helping families, whether that's in the youth court, whether that's in chancery court, dealing with divorces and child custodies and all those things. Um, protecting the children has been my passion for a really long time. Okay. Uh, let's start there. You know, okay. uh, protecting children seems like a self-evident thing within society. Children are, are, you know, arguably the most important members of our society. The younger they are, the more, the more vulnerable they are. Why is that such a passion for you specifically? Um, it's kind of started at an early age. I was babysitting as most teenagers do. Mm -hmm. um, I was involved with a family that had some drug issues, some uh, criminal charge issues. Uh, ended up having a child in my home with my parents at like the age of 13 or 14, where I would have her from Friday afternoon when I got out of school until Sunday night. And um, that was the first kind of inkling that I had had as a, as a teenager that children were often in bad situations and that we needed to protect them. So it wasn't a big deal at that point for me to have that baby in our home, you know, every weekend, mm -hmm. literally every weekend. Um, at some point during this process, the mother got involved in some criminal charges. CPS got involved. She went to jail. She ended up having another baby in jail. Um, 
the as it kind of rocked along, the biological father of the oldest child got custody, and the youngest child was actually adopted through the foster care system in Harrison County. Okay. Um, again, that was, I'm not going to tell you how long ago that was, but that was a really long time ago. So that was kind of the first exposure that I had had to that situation children can be involved in. And then... Um, what stands out to you about that? For me, is the fact that the family itself was not willing to step up because they had their own issues. There were other family uh, members that had those same types of issues. It's kind of that generational situation that stuck out the most to me. Like in my family, if somebody had an issue like that and my children were at risk, other family members would step in, you know, and help me and support me to get my feet back on the ground to help me do what I needed to do to make sure I was good so I could take care of my children like they should be taken care of. Yeah. Um, and so I think that always kind of blew my mind that those there were not families out there that were supportive of their children that were in crisis, mm-hmm. you know, even if they're adult children. Um, and so that kind of just always stuck with me. And at that time, Children's Protection Services was not this super umbrella, super program, mm-hmm. you know, all reaching. It didn't have the magnifying glass on it. No. You know, as it, as it does not today. Not I mean, there's, there's, um, there's that Netflix story about the child, Gabriel, I think is his name. I don't know if you've seen yes. that one. Yeah, I mean, they're like, that's, that's how magnified it is, is that, you know, Netflix has options for shows to show how, how dysfunctional it can be. Well, I mean, that's the other that's the other side of things. We had that case um, where those 13 children were removed because they were locked in their homes and their parents are their adoptive parents, you know, had locked them in cages and starved them and wouldn't let them bathe and and everything for years on end. And then they finally escape and they end up in the system. Mm-hmm. And now the older children um, are suing the state because of the way they were treated in foster care. Mm. You know, they were also traumatized again in foster care. They weren't provided with services. They weren't in the best of homes. You know, they were just, it, they went basically jumped from the frying pan into the fire. Yeah. And sometimes that's a real issue with foster, foster placement around the United States. Luckily, the foster parents that I've dealt with over the years in Jackson County, Harrison County, and Hancock County are some of the best. Yeah. They really are. Yeah, I, I think of I think of children who who escape those those situations because children are so impressionable and and they absorb so much out of their uh, out of their environments that uh, when they get out of those situations and into the wor- world where you know there's more morality and the ethics are are, are more grounded and universally known um, that it's sort of uh, an issue of kind of Plato's allegory of the cave, right? And it's that. Well, what they've been taught to understand within the world, how you're supposed to deal with conflict and things of that nature, that's that's all they know. And so it becomes this like emergent, transcendent experience where they have to redefine what their world is. And that can be traumatic for anybody for any sort of reason. Right. You know, Um, there's 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 plenty of people who escape war torn 
areas and, and the way that uh, they've known just Americans, you know, to, to be um, painted in a certain light because of because they've been fighting against Americans is entirely different when you experience the compassion of Americans, you know. Right. So. Right. Yeah. And that kind of goes hand in hand with um, the issues that we see a lot of times in the system of generational uh, yeah. issues where you have parents that are involved in criminal activity or drug activity or they themselves were abused and for them that's a normal situation Mm -hmm. you know that's their normal it may not be normal to the rest of us but that's their normal Mm -hmm. and so the children are brought up into that and um unfortunately um i had a young lady that reached out to me that i had represented very early on in my career as a guardian ad litem in jackson county and she thanked me for helping her and her sister get out of the foster system and back to her mother. Um, unfortunately, keeping that generational issue from going through her and her sister um, didn't quite work the way we wanted it to work. And yeah. now she's involved in the system and well, that's, that's with no her own task. children and it's not an easy yeah, task I mean, it's, it's really not an easy for, task for, for, for someone to say and and this is the problem that i have generally with the bootstrap mentality just pull yourself up by your bootstraps man you don't know what's in the damn boot right you know like there's a there's a lot there and yeah. and and to me it's it's uh these these issues are far more complex i mean you know you describe the issue uh as a child seeing that nobody would step up from this child that you're babysitting from their family to take care of the child. But it's not just that. I mean, in, in your family, your family had friends that would step in probably. Right. It's more than that. And so it's it's not just the fact that there's not family here to take care of them. You're That child is in a situation where they weren't properly socialized because their parents probably weren't weren't properly socialized because they don't understand the implications of how their actions actually affect other people. And that's especially true if you consider that the most important people in their, in their lives ought to be their children. And they don't even understand the value of that, you know, and and, and that, and that, and that moves through generation through generation. And so this child that comes up, maybe their parent did know better. And because of drugs, their, their priorities got mismanaged, but that's life to that child. Right. And that's how they know to behave. And that's, what's very traumatic about the whole thing. So it's not just simple as like, oh, well, you know, get them out of the situation and everything should be good. No, it's more than that. There's, there's full rehabilitation. And, and I think criticism with the rehabilitation issues, um, even if a child is adopted out, they're still dealing with those, those trauma issues Mm -hmm. and they'll deal with them for the rest of their lives. Even if they go from the very worst environment to the very best environment in an adoptive home, you know, there are a lot of times where, once the children are placed in adoptive homes, the state and CPS says, okay, they're yours now. And if you have children who are acting out and you have anger issues and you have uh, mental health issues and you have all of these things, CPS says, well, they're yours now. You have to deal with that. And when there's not any services in place to deal with that, then that cycle continues. Well, what what does it take to put those services in place? Well, unfortunately, here recently, the, um, the, the status of our mental health in the United States, um, and even here in our own Jackson County, they're so inundated. 
you can call and get an appointment and you're two months out. Yeah. You know, um, it's even worse for children in our county and in other counties. Um, so we really have to look for solutions on getting services, not only for the children that are in care, but for children when they're when they go back to their families or when they go back to um, or when they're in their adoptive placements. Mm -hmm. um, there's um, several instances where children have been in and out of group homes or mental facilities. And yet when they're in foster care, they're not getting the counseling that they need to as follow up care once they're released from those facilities. And we got to figure out why. Yeah. You know, is it because we're moving those children because they are behavioral issues for the foster parents and we're moving them so much that the um, counseling just gets kind of set to the wayside while we're waiting to find a stable place and somebody that can handle them? Um, we have children that have been moved 10 to 12 times in six to eight month periods. That's unreal. Um, and children we, need stability. I children mean. need stability. Um, on the flip side, we have children that um, once they are stable, you know, they do very well and there's no issues. But they still have the underlying trauma. They still want their parents. You know, they're always going to love that, that biological parent no matter the trauma that they've been through. So for them to then not go back into those homes and to be placed in an adoptive placement, there has to be some transition. There has to be some sort of counseling to help them deal with all the emotions that come with, mm. you know, not being able to go back to their original family, but eventually ending up in this permanent and permanent family. Yeah, I mean that 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 seems like an impossible task. Honestly, I mean it, it's 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 certainly it's very daunting. Yeah, it's yeah. very daunting, um, and um, it's often kind of the basis behind one of the questions of, you know, why do you, why do you want to be the youth court judge? Yeah, well, you know, I, I would say, <laughs> I, I mean, I think we'll get there eventually, but, but yeah, it's, it, it, it definitely is. I mean, just to take on without being the judge, I mean, you've, your roles, you, you used a, a, a Latin legal term, ad guardian ad litem, guardian ad litem. So, so you've performed that role uh, in the youth court, and I think the chancery court as well. Correct. Uh, let's let's talk more about your experiences, and then we'll segue into why still you want more of this. Right, <laughs> right. Um, so, a guardian ad litem in the state of Mississippi can be an attorney, mm -hmm. and there's um, classes that you have to take as far as continuing education classes um, that teach you how to perform your duties as a guardian ad litem. A guardian ad litem is an attorney in most cases. Um, it can be a person who's not an attorney, a lay person, um, who represents the children's best interests. So they don't necessarily represent what the children want to have happen. Mm -hmm. Like if I have a 10-year-old that says, I don't want to go visit my dad anymore just because I don't want to, as a guardian ad litem, I know that having parental relationship with both parents unless there's some trauma or some abuse or some right, neglect right. is going to be in that child's best interest so sure. you have to help the court figure out what's going on um, we report to the court you know if there's allegations of abuse or neglect or drugs or whatever 
And then we help the court, if we can at all possible, fashion a remedy to repair that relationship if it's come to that and it needs repair or if it's come to the point where there's just so much parental conflict that it's affecting the children. Mm -hmm. And we see we see all sorts of issues as so, a guardian. So one one thing that strikes me as odd is I, I understand in in a criminal you know case, there is an interest of the plaintiff, an interest of the defendant. It seems that in the youth court, everybody understands what the interest is. It's a single interest. Yes. Right. And and so but why are there two different legal entities arguing for one side or the other? And is there actually a one side or the other? Well, in in youth court, you have the state, which is representative by Children's Protection Services in abuse and neglect situations. Um, you have the guardian ad litem who is representing the best interest of the children. And the court in general is set up to help families that are in crisis to work through their crisis issues and to become at, to come out stronger and healthier. That's the, you know, design utopian goal. Okay. okay. Um, does it always work that way? No. Um, have there been instances where the families are not reunified? Yes. That's why we have foster care. That's why we have foster adoptions, you know, things like that. Sometimes families just don't get to that point of reunification. But the ultimate goal is to help families in crisis come out stronger and healthier and the children to be reunited. Um, in a criminal aspect, you have the state and you have a law that's been broken. And so it's the interest of the state to punish a wrongdoer. Makes sense, yeah. Where with you court, we're civil. We're not necessarily, you know, a criminal court where there's punishment and a lot of people think that when your children are taken, that's the ultimate punishment. And of course it is. Yeah. yeah it is. Reasonably. But it's not a criminal punishment. Mm -hmm. And um, that's kind of a legal distinction. And a lot of people mm -hmm. don't quite understand that. Um, so that's a role as, you know, the attorney when I'm helping families to, to get them to understand that we are here to help. We're not here to hurt. We're here to get you through this crisis. Um, and hopefully for the better but with the um, guardian ad litem they're not they're necessarily supposed to be neutral you know as, apart from the court apart from the mom or the dad and the state mm -hmm. and they're supposed to kind of help that court determine what avenues we need to get to to get back to that happy healthy strong family mm -hmm. um, then you've got the judge he's supposed to be impartial and neutral listening to all sides not just the parents not just cps not just the guardian ad litem but listening to everything and making that determination as to how to achieve that ultimate goal of reunification um with the um prosecutor you know it's similar to you know a criminal proceeding they're there to make sure that the crisis that brought the family to the attention of the court is dealt with in a fair and timely manner. And, you know, we work through that process as well. So yeah. a lot of different cogs in that, in that system to, in a very complex system with in, very complex issues. Right. Obviously. Let me ask you something. Do your kids ever get away with anything in your household? Because, because we've got an attorney and you're married to a police captain, right? Yes. 
Yes. Yeah. Do they get um, away with anything? And and how do they feel about you becoming a judge then? <laughs> um, my kids would probably tell you that there's very little that they get away with. Um, because because you know uh, I don't I don't know if it's a conflict of interest. Who's representing the kids here? Uh, <laughs> well, you know when we when my husband and I first got married, um, I was in law school and he um, had not yet decided to go to the police academy. Um, and so when he decided to go to the police academy and follow in his uh, father's footsteps, um, we kind of made this pact between us that if he was putting them in jail, I was not getting them out of jail. So he, that kind of precluded God, the what whole a rough conversation. Precluded the whole criminal being a criminal lawyer, you know, circuit yeah, court and all yeah. that stuff. Um, so when he went into law enforcement. He was working for the city of Ocean Springs and he's dealt with juveniles over the course of 20 years now. And now he's in the school system. So he's seeing the opposite side of things. And so we have plenty of discussions about, you know, this is what's going on. This is what we're seeing. This is what um, issues the law enforcement is having. Um, I've had multiple conversations with various uh, law enforcement friends across several agencies here on the Gulf Coast about the issues that they're seeing with juveniles, what they think we need to do as far as uh, the youth court system. How do we get these children um, in and held accountable for the actions that you're that they're you know involved in? Um, here recently, there seems to have been such a rise in juveniles who are being charged with accessory to murder or you know it seemed like last robbery last or, may in gulfport it was it was rough that yeah. just um you know a yeah, lot when, of kids i mean when you have 16 and 17 year olds that should be in the youth court system but yet they're committing crimes that involve a weapon and they're being charged with murder or accessory to murder there's a failure there somewhere we have failed and we have to kind of figure out where that that failure has come in because if they've had a history of juvenile delinquency then what services or what didn't they get out of that system that caused them to stay on that path and end up in the adult system yeah um as a matter of fact yesterday i was over at the courthouse in pascagoula was look just happened to chance looking at the circuit court docket upstairs and one of the names popped out as one of my kids from youth court in the juvenile justice delinquency side of wow. things and uh, someone that was doing very well for a period of time um, as a teenager seemed to be doing very well because I kept up with them over the course of years um, and then now, all of a sudden, he's back involved with um, the circuit court system. So we've got to figure out, again, it's that repetition, it's those generational issues, it's, you know, where did we as a system fail to keep him from repeating those issues he was involved in as juvenile, and now he's involved in the adult system. Are the youth courts equipped to handle a topic like that? I mean, because it, 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 it seems to some degree you, you get into an issue of, of, of privacy, right? I mean, because because some of these kids, they'll they'll leave the courts and they go back to their families and, you know, everything appears to be on a, 
you know, on a good path. And maybe it's just at this point media that they could be consuming, um, maybe culturally driven that, that is, um, incentivizing these kids. They think it's cool to do these certain things. I mean, can the state, can the youth court, can they really impact that? There are certain limitations that of course, you know, that we have, you know, we can only help as much as we can. And again, Mm -hmm. you've got resource issues that limit that ability. But when you have a child, excuse me, that is fighting constantly at school or um, involved in the sale of drugs and you go to report them to law enforcement and law enforcement is like, we can't help you. We can't help you. Mm-hmm. There's a failure to an extent because there's there's oftentimes not the consequences that we as adults think these children should should get. Mm-hmm. Um, I had some law enforcement complain about, and this is just you know coastwide, not specifically Jackson County, but that you know they bring a juvenile in and they're told there's no room at the detention center or they're told to release them to a parent. Well, that's a problem if you can't reach the parent, you know, and you've got a juvenile sitting at, you know, a police station for hours on end. Um, Or you have a juvenile that's threatening violence and you take them to the juvenile detention center and by the time that officer gets back to their station or to their um, office or wherever their, you know, their streets, that juvenile's been released, you know. Um, we see all the time um, kids in trouble, and they'll say, their most common phrase these days is, well, the youth court's not going to do anything. I'm not going to get in trouble. I'm, I'm going to get a slap on the wrist, and they're going to let me go. So somewhere there's an issue across the board, and I think that kind of goes back to um, – a lack of resources, a lack mm-hmm. of situation. Unfortunately, um, Jackson County has a teenage drug issue, just like Harrison County, just like Hancock County. Um, and due to lack of resources, they had to shut down the juvenile drug court. You know, it's worked well in the adult detention center uh, or the adult system. Uh, we have a great setup in Jackson County for drug court. We have a great setup in Harrison County. Um, and they had to shut down the the juvenile side of that here in Jackson County. Um, that was announced late last year. And is um, that just a money aspect? Um, I'm not necessarily sure if it was a money aspect. It was um, announced that due to lack of um, staffing issues, basically, and some resources that were needed that they weren't able to do, you know, to finish out the program or to keep the program in place. Yeah, that's tragic. It is, and that's, you know, one of the issues we're going to have to, you know, reach out into the community for. We're going to have to find those community resources again. Um, A lot of things with COVID, you know, everybody's kind of retracted, you know, their community involvement Mm -hmm. um, because of that, you know, those issues. And so we've got to get the community more active in in doing what we need to do to, to make sure these kids are, you know, staying safe. Well, Jennifer, I, I love your perspective. I mean, you, you've, you've spoken about how, you know, as a child, it, you, you kind of got your first um, perspective over that uh, maybe some kids don't, don't have uh, the family resources that, right. that 
that you had. And it's not just family. You know, we've talked about how, how that's within the community and, and that fueled a, a uh, seems like a passion for you to, to go into this field. Right. And you've been doing it for what, over 20 years now. Right. Yeah. And so we've, we've hit on some, some issues within, within the youth court. Now you do have a private practice as well. I do currently. Okay. Uh, once elected, I have to, uh, a certain period of time after taking office to shut down my private practice. Okay. So um, it's usually about six months. So um, right now I have, um, I do bankruptcy work. I do chancery court work, divorces, child custodies, custody modifications, child support issues. Mm-hmm. And then I also have some cases out at youth court currently where I'm representing families. Okay. Gotcha. There. And at what point over this 20 year period, what was, what was the impetus for you to decide, you know what, I think I want to be a judge. Like what, what changed for you? Because it, it seems if you've been doing this for so long, you've, you've got to practice. Why give all that up in order to pursue, uh, being a judge? Well, actually the first time I ran for youth court judge was in 2006. Um, I okay. ran against judge Segalis. Um, it was, um, I think that would have been after her first term. Um, Youth court has always, um, I don't want to say have issues, but there's always room for change. There's always room to do things differently. Um, With regard to having been in the system, both in Jackson County, Harrison County, and in Hancock County, um, there's always different procedures and policies and different ways of doing things. And I have to commend um, Judge Dickinson. I've worked with him several times over the last few years since he took office in Harrison County. And when he took office, there were over 700 children in the foster care system. And um, latest statistics were that he had reduced the number of children in care by 62%. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah, that's very impressive. Um, Judge Favre over in Hancock County is on track for with similar numbers. Um, there were over 400 children at one point in care in, in Hancock County, and that number has been reduced greatly. Um, in 2018, uh, let's see, I ran in 2006. I left Hancock County, uh, full-time job over there in Hancock County, working with the youth court, and came back here um, in 2018 to reopen my practice and to run again in um, 2018. Here, Jennifer, real quick, push that microphone front and just forward a little bit. There you go. Perfect. There we go. There you go. And um, so at that point in time in 2018, we had over 300 children in care in foster placement um, in Jackson County. Um, we are down right now, last count, about three weeks ago, right around 230, 250. So there's been some reduction in care, um, children in care, but um, you know, those numbers are, are pretty steady for us. Mm-hmm. And we have, um, you know, whereas George County or Green County, for that matter, they're usually averaging about 50 to 75 children, maybe sometimes upwards of 100 children, but that's very rare in Georgia and Green Counties. Um, but we, have, you know, got to get some different policies in place. There's different programs now that are out there um, to help families in crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, Judge Dickinson's doing a couple of pilot programs. Judge Favre's doing a couple of pilot programs. Um, you know, maybe those are things we need to look out in Jackson County. You know, that's some of the things I've talked to different people about, you know, what's out there, what's different programs. So we can keep children, as long as they're safe, 
in the home and work on those crisis issues by keeping the children in home and not further traumatizing them by removing them into a stranger's household. Sure, sure. Um, you know, while DHS, or excuse me, CPS now, that's still kind of hard for me to, to say uh, since they've changed the, the acronym mm-hmm. after 20 years. Um, their policies and procedures, you know, favor family placement. Like if my children were to be removed, then it's possible they could go to my sister. Okay. Um, that Makes kind sense. of, th- th- yeah, that kind of sense. Um, when I first started, family placement did not have to go through training um, to become licensed foster parents. Mm-hmm. Um, you could have a background check and a drug screen, and as long as you were good on those, your nieces or nephews or whoever could come live with you while their parents were working on their issues. Now, anytime a child is removed and you put them into a family placement, they have to become licensed foster parents within a certain period of time. And so they have to go through 12 weeks of training. They have to go through extensive background checks. They have to go through drug uh, screenings. And so basically, if you have any type of issue in your background, even if it was 20 years ago, you may not get a family placement for that child. Yeah, it, it's, I see the intent and, and, and yet I also see, you know, the, the complexity of the unintended consequence there, you know, it's that, yeah. um, well, I mean, you're raising the barrier for entry there. Right. You know, and, and, and as you do that, as you discriminate more, well, your pool of, of, of potential prospects is going to be lessened. Right. You know, so, so you're actually have, creating a problem in, yeah. in some and sense. So that, that kind of changed in the last eight to 10 years, you know, where families are um, required to become foster parents. And a lot of times families don't have that ability to take that time out from work and go to those foster care classes or to, you know, at the drop of a hat, answer a call from CPS or whatever. And so it can be very inconvenient, which off puts some families. Sure. Um, But yet you're taking those children who have already been traumatized and are in crisis and potentially putting them with families that they, they have no idea who they are Mm. and whatever. So that's kind of been an issue, but, um, well, it, it, it seems like you've seen in, 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 your, in your many years, you've, you've worked with, with many different types of people, which, which has its, its, its benefit. Um, what have you seen that's, that's worked in your 20 years? I mean, what, what are the core, uh, the sort of basics that, that we need to not get away from that you've seen? Um, wow, there's just been so much. Um, most success stories for families come when there is support. Okay, whether that's from the court, whether that's from CPS, or from their own families. Uh, When you have a mom or a dad that has a drug issue and they have that support and they're told, look, you've made a mistake, you need to do X, Y, and Z, Um, you can see your children, you can, you know, your family's got them, you've got that support, this is what you need to do. most of that success comes from them understanding that they're not going to be punished over and over and over again for that one mistake. A mm-hmm. um, lot of success rate with getting f- 
families, their children back and, you know, keeping them together. Um, I had one young lady when I was over in Hancock County when I left and was running for youth court judge in 2018, um, send me an email wishing me good luck on the election and, you know, saying, you know, you helped us through this process. And when you have that staff of support, whether it's a parent representative, which is what I was in helping indigent families or poverty stricken families have an attorney beside them in court to explain that situation to them, uh, to explain the process, um, to explain what a service plan is Mm -hmm. that DHS is requiring them to have and what they have to do. And um, my job was to help them find resources, um, whether it was housing resources, whether it was parenting classes, anger management classes, getting them into drug treatment or helping them getting into drug treatment, um, helping the workers get them to and from that drug treatment, NA, AA, you know, all of those resources. Um, when you have that support, that helps those families. Yeah. And so that's been the biggest thing that we need to have in place is that support, whether it's from attorneys, guardian ad items, you know, CPS, they need that support. Mm-hmm. Um, one of our biggest failures is where I think, you know, our CPS workers are so underpaid and they're so overworked. And I think, um, I think the latest number of social workers in Jackson County that I saw the other day was around 20. Wow. 20 social workers for over 200, between 200 and 250 children. Wow. And, and, and and just to, I mean, it's not like an office visit type of thing from, from, from my understanding. I know a young lady who, uh, she's, she's, she's got a master's degree in, in, in social work and I don't know exactly cause I know there's different certifications right. there. I don't know which one I don't want to speak out of turn, but, but she tells me, she's like, she, she goes into homes and, and just cockroaches are running across her feet. And it's just, it's, I can't imagine even if you're trying to do a good job, it's easy to do a good job in that situation because the environments themselves are, are tough and distracting. So um, that there's a 10, 15 to one ratio uh, of, of cases per individual, I think maybe highlights a bubble of mental health problems on the case of the social workers as well, yes. having, having to deal with, with those yes. issues. I there's mean, a, a huge amount of turnover um, with social workers um, I've worked with some for for years, um, and you know there are periods of time where they have to they have to have, they themselves have their own timeouts. You know mm-hmm. they have to step back for their own mental health, and it's not easy when you're dealing with ch- uh, you know the requirements that you have to visit every single child on your caseload, that you have to update school records and make sure they're getting to their medical appointments and things like that. Um, in the past, there have been issues uh, with the lack of social workers um, where a child was supposed to be picked up and taken to counseling from the school by the social worker. And the social worker had something come up and the child got left at the school inadvertently, mm-hmm. you know, and they missed their counseling sessions. Um, when that happens too many times, then the counselor doesn't want to see children in care anymore because, you know, they're not getting their time in with the children the children aren't getting the help they need and the counselor's sitting there for an hour you know so it's kind of this circular effect 
Sure. Um, and, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure how we can work on the issues with the social workers. We have some great ones mm-hmm. along the Gulf Coast that I've worked with over the years. And um, well, I think it starts with being a person of, of, of experience and a person of influence. I think it starts there. And, and you know, getting into the, the role of a judge, uh, which is what you're aspiring to do, you bring both of those things. You know, you've, you've got this experience that's, that spanned the coast for, for so long that's um, seen issues. I mean, in your private practice, you dealt with bankruptcy. You, you've got a fiscal mindset, understand where the problems can go, right? You know, at least so. So, you, so you bring that that to the table as well. You've you've well with you've dealt with divorce issues. You've dealt with issues of the family. I mean, I can't imagine a better place for it to start than the nexus of all these things in one individual, and who have done them for so long and built the business on it, which is what you've done. It sounds like, yes. right? Yes. So, the question has to be again: What would drive you to campaign, and 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 be a judge? Well, I think that as a judge, you're in a unique role to guide the changes that need to be made. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Not necessarily, you know, starting from scratch or, you know, firing all the social workers, firing all the staff, you know, not anything like that, but implementing some of the changes that I've envisioned over the course of the years. Like if you have x y and z problem then maybe we should do abc um and not do what we've been doing for 20 years that doesn't seem to be working sure um so those are kind of some things that that i've looked at and i think as as the judge you're in a unique role to make sure that those changes are implemented that um there are you know people who are doing their jobs and doing them correctly. Um, one of the issues that brought me to Hancock County in 2015 was the fact that there was such an issue with social workers. Um, there were allegations over there that social workers had um, falsified documents, mm. um, were not taking um, different documents that the parents were turning in, just a variety of issues. And so they brought in um, an attorney for the parents to work not only with the parents, but to kind of bridge that trust issue between the parents and CPS. Well, that's a big part of it is is, is just trust in the system. Correct. You know? And a lot of parents don't trust the system, especially if, they're not, if they were in the system as children. Mm. Again, back to generational issues. Generational issues, yeah. They're in the system as children, and now they're dealing with the system as adults, there's, there's no trust there. I think it's complicated further too, because if you get in, in trouble with the law and, and, and maybe you don't get your fair shake of justice, whatever that looks like, you know, it's easy to look at the person who's prosecuting you and the person who's supposed to be looking out for the family as the same person you right. know, within the state. And so if you distrust this person, you, you ought to probably distrust that, that right. person as well. So, so, as, so a, as the judge, we have to make sure that all of those people keep in mind that ultimate goal of, again, that utopian goal, a stronger, healthier, happier family at mm-hmm. some point and making sure everybody's doing what they, they need to do. And if we need to change that, you know, if we need to implement a different procedure, if we need to implement a different policy, because, you know, for 20 years, this, the system 
not just in Jackson County, but in general, is been plagued with issue after issue after issue. And um, I get daily emails with from a listserv from all over the country with various issues, you know, that not only do we deal with here in Mississippi, what they deal with in um, Nevada and California and Michigan and Maryland and everything. And one of the great things that um, I've been able to do over the years is go to different conferences on these different issues and meet with these different people and discuss different procedures in other states and how we can maybe implement them in our state and it's something I look forward to to doing uh, once elected you know bringing in other ideas that are working in other states that maybe have not been looked at here yeah and and I'm glad you brought that up I, I think it's easy to look at anything Mississippi has administratively and paint it with the same broad stroke paintbrush that says it's behind the times I don't believe that's the case on the coast it may be per pervasive in the state. I don't believe that's the case in the coast. You would know more in this realm, certainly right. than I would, but it means a lot to me that, that, uh, you would say, well, it's, it's, if there's 49 other, other experiments out there, right. Right. It's likely somebody's doing something better and we ought to take a look at that. So I think that's really cool that, and that, I think that that's a part of, that's a lot on. of, um, you know, there's a trend right now going through the United States that, youth court should not be confidential that it should be open up to public so that not necessarily terrifies me well to an extent to an extent um not using names or allowing the press into it but um most juvenile justice child welfare systems have an automatic gag order in place when a child comes into custody or a juvenile comes into custody um, you cannot, you're not discussing with anybody. So if, for instance, the issues that happened in Hancock County in 2013, 2014, 2015, um, if those families had not spoken up and broken that confidentiality and not kept their documentation and not documented what was going on with social workers, we would never have known about it. We'd never have known about it. Mm. Um, so there has to be some, maybe some avenues for other oversight to I make see. sure that not only CPS is doing their jobs, but the court system it is do, as well as doing their jobs. Uh, and yeah. that's a fine line that we have to draw, but that's a major discussion right now going on around the United States about is the confidentiality actually more of a hindrance than and actual protection. Yeah, I'm sh I'm curious what the marginal benefit of that is. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm also surprised that that might be part of the discussion when it seems that there are very progressive ideas out there that seek to cancel the box. I don't know if you've heard about this, but it's to remove the box on an employment application of have you ever been convicted of a felony? And so it's the idea that like, okay, well, they're still paying the consequences for serving their time. And so there's a movement to say, hey, we should kick that out. There's a study years ago done out of Duke that looked at the um, economic implications of the way you were named, right? Mm. Okay. John versus, say, I don't know, any other name, right? Right. Um, but uh, the study found that, now, again, it's 
the causality is where the is where the important part of the study is. But certain names you would be you would have less likely of getting a job. You therefore would make less money in the long run. So um, there's this idea like, hey, maybe we should remove names from applications because that might be a way that somebody might through their bias discriminate against somebody. Okay. Again, these are. I hadn't heard about that study, but yeah, In that's that very interesting. Thought, yeah, yeah, right, right. That's so, very interesting. so it is surprising that that they might want to make those public. And of course, anything that's in public, um, also to start limiting press, seems to be like a constitutional issue. It's government providing access to something, but then also limiting press. And now you have this for-profit press that's out there. Right. That's kind of terrifying as well. And then with social media as well, once it's on the internet, it's it's, it's out there. It's out there. Yeah. So, like right now when uh, chance record is open to the public okay so if you're going through a divorce and somebody wants to sit in there that is in no way related to your case you can sit in there and you can hear everybody's dirty laundry in chance record divorce oh man okay if you want to go in and hear about an estate where somebody's passed away and their assets and their creditors and all that stuff you can go sit in chance record you can go sit in criminal court and listen to a trial of a defendant that's been accused of a crime. In youth court, um, you can't even step foot into the building unless you are involved in the case in some way, okay? Uh, I have a case out there right now where uh, I'm representing grandparents. Um, The grandparents right now have uh, custody and even though I represent a party, I can't call and say, hey, this is Jennifer. Can you give me this information? They don't do that over the phone. They won't even acknowledge that there's a case over the phone. I mean, that's the confidentiality issue. And it's great to an extent. Yeah. Um, but when, again, there are issues um, with, again, I, I hark back to Hancock County, you know, how does somebody find out that those issues are going on, mm-hmm. right, um, until a family member steps up or the court itself polices itself and releases that information, a lot of people don't know what goes on out, out there. So it's a fine line between juggling, hey, this is how many kids we've taken into custody, and these are the reasons why we've taken them into custody, or these are the reasons why these children have been arrested, not giving their names, but giving their you know, crimes um, and reporting to the public, this is the work that we're doing. This is, it's not this secretive, you know, nobody knows what's going on. Nobody knows how many children are in custody, um, whether juvenile delinquency or, or foster care until, you know, those numbers are released by the state every so often. Mm. So, so that was going to be a, a question I have is that if, it, if you had less confidentiality, could you have better data to maybe create policies that affected more meaningful outcomes? I think so. Yeah. I think so. Because without the numbers, without the um, ability to say, okay, we have this many children who are affected by their children, by their parents' drug usage, or we have this many... Um, children who were removed from a family member's care, not necessarily a parent, because as you know, this trend here recently has been grandparents raising children, their Mm -hmm. grandchildren. Um, What services, 
you know, do they need? Because it's a different group of individuals, you know. Um, you may have a grandmother that's in her 70s who, due to her own health issues, can't drive her, her grandchild to counseling. And so they're not getting counseling. They're not getting those services that yeah. they need to help them with their behavioral issues. So they're acting up in school or they're uh, truant or, you know, there's just a myriad of things. So we don't, we don't necessarily have that data you know, made to the public so that we can so we can find those resources and and work toward those solutions. Yeah. Everything's very, very much on lockdown until um, it's released by the state. Mm. You know, I've 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 wondered about this. You you said uh, grandparents raising raising their grand grandchildren. I don't I don't have kids, and and it's for um, health reasons, kind of out of out of touch. We've we've thought about. Uh, adopting or foster to adoption. But, I, but I've wondered, like, is there a market for somebody that is maybe closer to the age of the child that might be able to help the grandparent? If there's an avenue for somebody, say like me, mm-hmm. say I wanted to do that, you know, I can't imagine somebody in their 60s can get out there and run and play sports with that, right. you know, with that child. But that's something, man, it'd be a lot of fun for me, you know? Right. And then everybody could mutually benefit from that. You know, is, is, is there a market for, for something like that? Is that something that? I, I think that kind of goes back to, we have to have more community uh-huh. involvement. Um, I know when I was growing up and you were growing up, if you walked around the street and you did something stupid when you oh, were on there, and by the time you got back home, oh, it man. was reported to every single family member in your, in your family, right? Yeah. And so we don't have that. You know, we don't yeah. have that community involvement. We don't have that community Well, one of the oversight. reasons is because the kids aren't outside. Well, <laughs> to an extent now, but not like, you know, 20 years ago. We sure. didn't have iPhones. We didn't have the gaming mm-hmm. systems. Um, so, you know, we can't all blame the Internet or social media it's for. It's so easy to, though. It is. It is. But it's, it, and again, it's not, that's not the sole, the sole reason. Mm-hmm. Um you know, there's lack of parental oversight. There's, you know, lack of family involvement. There's lack of community involvement. Um, the, with my own children, we are very active in the community. Um, we know children from, you know, all, basically all avenues of the high school um, and the community for that matter. Um, I have nephews that are active and, uh, meet all of their friends and things like that. And when they have those role models um, and they have those mentors that, you know, it helps. It helps them so much because that is a person that they can go to and say, you know, I'm dealing with this issue. Can you help me? You know, it's not just a family member. It's not just, but it's a person of trust. Yeah. And um, we saw a lot of that when, um, my kids were growing up, you had softball coaches and baseball coaches and football coaches who stepped in and helped, you know, fill that mentor role. Mm -hmm. And there's still a lot of people in our community to that do that. But, you know, unfortunately our softball program here in, in, um, Ocean Springs, Jackson County, um, is having trouble finding coaches, you know, the same way with the baseball programs, um, we need to get back into that community involvement and, you know, making the children um, an, a priority. Mm-hmm. You know, if you have a child that, you know, you know is going to go home hungry, you know, 
we have the backpack program, the buddy backpack program. Um, we have different avenues, but we don't have an avenue for that child to, you know, have that mentor to say, hey, how do I figure out what this problem is? Or how do I deal with this bullying situation? Or how do I deal with the fact that I'm home alone, you know, without being worried that CPS is going to come take me from my house? Yeah. Um, th- those are just things that, you know, there are, there are issues. We have so many issues, uh, so many issues with our children. But a lot of times, even the children are afraid to say anything. Other adults are afraid to say things about mm-hmm. what's going on because they're scared of the youth court system. Yeah. And they're scared of the children being lost and not coming home and or being further traumatized in the system. And so they don't report. And if we have the system as basically a last resort, but we have that community involvement and that community support, maybe we won't have to go to youth court as a last resort and we can keep those kids and their families and give them the help they need from the community. That's, of course, a utopian situation. But, you know... What can you as a judge do affect those things? Well, it's, you know, again, reaching out um, into the community. Um, Along the campaign trail, I've talked to um, several pastors in our community Mm -hmm. in Jackson County. Several of them have said, hey, look, we want to be mentors. We want to volunteer with the program. We want to... Um, have your children um, involved, you know, not necessarily as a missionary evangelistic type of thing, but just as a mentor situation. And it's not just the churches. You know, we have the uh, Distinguished Young Gentlemen's uh, group here on the coast that goes in and helps young men that don't have a father figure learn how to change oil in a car and do a bow tie or, you know, shows them how to dress nice and, you know, suit and tie and all that stuff. And they're stepping up as mentors. Wow. And that doesn't have a religious basis. It's just a community basis thing. Yeah. And so we need more people that are willing to do that, mm. I think. And that's just a first step. And we've I've talked to those people, um, not just this campaign cycle, but you know, throughout the course of the 20 years I've been practicing um, in child welfare and juvenile justice, looking for those alternatives, looking for those solutions and resources to say, this is that support that we need. It all goes back to that support. This is, you know, can you come in and say, this child's acting out, can you be a mentor, um, channel that injury in energy or misbehavior or if that's possible Mm -hmm. that's not really a word but um their energy into productive things and not destructive things sure sure and uh, i think there's something primal to that i i really do i i I think that um you know we've 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 got this try to do this on on facebook but the question of like is there meaning or or are we meaning seeking creatures and 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 i think to some degree we are meaning seeking And, and one of the things by Everyone seems to want to have an impact on the world. One of the things you can do to create an impact on the world is is create an impact on something within the world. Right. And so I think there's something primal to doing, like this table. This table is something I built, right? And it's, I don't know, it's not crazy nice, but I did it. Right. And it, it means something to me for that. I felt good about that. And I think in a lot of, for a lot of 
people, they would find more meaning in their life and find more value in the things that they do every day if they're taught to do things on their own and taught that um, you can find fulfillment that way. So I think that's really important. So this, uh, what is the group, this uh, Distinguished Young Gentlemen yes. Club? Man, that's great. Yeah. That is, that is so it's huge. A, it's a great program. Yeah. Um, and then you've got um, situation, it kind of goes back to, you know, if you're doing it, we went back to that bootstrap thing, bootstrap yourself out of that situation. That's so hard to do unless yeah. you have that support, unless you have that um, mentor that can help you. Because a lot of times when kids are in crisis and the trauma, they they have tunnel vision. Yeah. All they can see is what they've been through. Yeah. And um, while, you know, over the course of the years, you know, we've been successful in helping families get reunited. Sometimes the most heartbreaking things are when families are not reunited. Mm -hmm. And um, it's always heartbreaking for me when a parent loses their children mm. and um, they don't end up with their family, you know, or with distant family. They end up with, you know, a foster family. And like I said earlier, we have some great foster families, but unfortunately the foster families need support too. Yeah. And there's not a lot of support for foster families because there's only certain things you can, you can do like, um, for instance, if a foster family needs to, you know, go out of town and they want to bring their foster children with them, they have to have court permission. Makes sense. Yeah. Okay. If they're traveling across state lines. Um, if a foster family needs to um, have a medical procedure um, and the children need to go to another place, you know, another family member for a period of time, if it's over a certain number of hours or days, that babysitter for lack of a better term has to be background checked and drug screened yeah even if it's a family member okay yeah so if um there's conflicting conflicting information on that as well so that that needs to be a change we have family foster families who are dealing with lots of behavioral issues that they need respite care um i think in all of jackson county there may be one respite foster parent who what is that, by the way? Respite, respite is, is if um, they are licensed foster parents and they only take children basically to give their regular foster parents a break. Oh, I see. I see. Okay. So I think last I knew there was only maybe one or two respite foster pa parents Available. I would bet a lot of people don't know about that because that might be because I know a lot of people who have considered foster care, but they think the burden is uh, it's 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 they don't want to bite off more than they could chew. Right. That sounds like a great segue. It is. You it know? really is. And I've in over the course of years, we've had foster parents um, who were foster parents and then decided not to be foster parents anymore because of just the myriad of issues, not only with the children themselves that are in placement, but the, what they see as problems in the system. Mm -hmm. And so, um, there's a great group here that's trying to promote and encourage more families to become foster families, but they're getting a lot of pushback because of the, I don't want to say stigma, but that perception that it's, you know, this big 
troublesome issue. You know, there's always issues with CPS. I call there's what it always is. I mean, there's, issues there's, there's, with there's behaviors. definitely a stigma. And there is, you know, yeah. a stigma. And so we have to work on, you know, giving the foster parents the support so that they are in a good place for the children that they have in their homes. Um, I became aware um, here recently that once foster families adopt, um, basically CPS says they're yours now. And if there's issues, you know, continuing behavioral issues, um, they don't have that support anymore. You know, even though the children had issues in care and CPS was aware of those issues when they adopted, you know, there's no more, there's no more support. Mm -hmm. So they're having to find ways to support each other. Wow. Yeah. And, uh, um, it's so complex. It is. It's very I mean, complex. I mean, system. every, even if you get them to the point of, of, of fostering, it's like, yeah, great. We've done it. Oh, by the way, now we've, we've opened Pandora's box to this next just huge complex thing. I mean, my goodness. Right. I mean, how, how do you, so man, we've talked a lot about, uh, things and problems with, within the community and, and your perspective is fantastic, by the well, way. Thank you. Uh, how do you, how do you decompress from all this? Because it, it seems that in, in your household, and, and, we, and we've talked about this, you've got your husband who's, who deals with issues out in the community, which, oh, by the way, really gives you a unique perspective that you haven't talked a lot about, right. is that you've got a unique perspective at the, I would say, the grassroots level about what a community actually needs, because the, the people that deal with problems within the community, um, well, are, are police as well. And, and you get to hear that all the time. Uh, so how, one, yeah, I guess let's start there. What does that perspective mean to you? And then, and then how do you, how do you utilize that as a judge with that perspective? Well, as sitting here right now, as an attorney that deals with, you know, juvenile justice and child welfare, um, we have a lot of friends and, um, my husband's been in the law enforcement community for over 20 years. Um, so it gives me a unique perspective because, you know, if there's, an issue, especially now with all the school shootings and stuff, I've watched that evolve over the last four, full 10 years or so. Um, as a matter of fact, my husband worked for Ocean Springs Police Department and the city of Ocean Springs. And when the school district formed their police department and campus police department, he moved into the school district. Mm -hmm. um, basically, like myself, he wanted to be at that ground level you know, where he's interacting with these kids on a daily basis, um, where, you know, kids are getting to know the police as a helper and not a threat. Um, and so that's been a unique perspective that sure. he's working in that environment and he's helping, you know, the kids get to feel comfortable around the police instead of, you know, hearing and seeing the things that are in the community. Um, and then we've got, you know, our friends and family that are, are in the actual law enforcement committee with the cities and other school districts and things like that. So constantly hearing and talking and, hey, how do y'all do this over here? How do y'all do this over here? Mm -hmm. And it gives, I think, a unique perspective on, again, those innovations in other areas that maybe we need to do mm -hmm. here in Jackson County. Sure. Um, but... Um, we try as far as decompression, 
um, again, we're very active in our community. So mm-hmm. we're, you know, when I leave the office at five o'clock or six o'clock, um, I'm at a ball field somewhere mm-hmm. until my son went to college. Um, now we're, my daughter's in the band and color guard and all those things. And nephews are playing football and baseball and swim meets and stuff like that. So we're still active and, you know, spending time with our family and, you know, spending time as a couple, it kind of helps decompress and, and all of that stuff. So, you know, again, it goes back to family. It goes back to support. That's been a major um, theme for me. You know, families are, are sacred to me. Mm -hmm. They always have been. And so as a youth court judge, um, you know, the fundamental right to parent your children that felt uh, children, um, that families are sacred, um, that we need to do what we can do in order to protect those children so that they are back into those families in a safe and healthy environment uh, has always been, you know, foremost in my mind, whether it's as a judge or as a guardian ad litem or as an attorney. Um, you know, there are people over the 20 years that I'm sure are not happy with me because I've made decisions that they didn't like. And um, even as a divorce lawyer, you know, I represent one side and um, the other side may not like me because I represented my client and I got them what they wanted. Um, that's natural in the course of human interactions. interactions. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, you know, but I mean, I, I think that at the end of the day, as long as I'm doing what I need to do to protect the children and to protect my clients, I'm mm-hmm. doing my job. Yeah. Agreed. You know, and so when people say, oh, she didn't do this or she didn't do that. Well, okay, you were on the other side and you didn't like my decision. And that's natural that you're not happy with that, with that decision. Right, right. But, you know, again, I'm following the law. I'm following policies and procedures and I'm doing, you know, again, it's a human ideology. I'm doing what I feel is in the best interest of the children. And you have to take into account you know, that human aspect instead of the utopian aspect. And, um, and not everybody's going to be happy. Well, I think, I think people need to realize that, that it's better to solve problems outside of the law than with the law, first and foremost, probably, because you can't legislate ethics, you know. Exactly. You, can, you know, try as you might, exactly. you know, you're, 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 you're using, you know, big, big tools to manage very delicate things, right. you know, when it, when it comes to the law. Um, so I don't know anybody that's, that's gone into a courtroom and, and thought, Hey, everything worked out exactly. This was totally worth it. You know, no, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a pain, it's a painful experience. <laughs> yeah. Nobody, you know, somebody says, Oh, well, did you win? It's like, well, nobody wins when they're in the legal system, yeah. whether it's a divorce, whether it's a family fighting over a deceased person, deceased loved one's assets, whether it's, you know, a boundary dispute, you know, and you're fighting over property. And when you have to step foot inside of a courtroom, whether it's chancery court or youth court, nobody, not everybody's going to be happy, you know, and as a judge, as an attorney, I try to make that as not difficult and as not, um, as, um, painful as the process sometimes can be. And um, at least I try to the best of my ability. Yeah. And um, I know over 24 years, I have not made everybody happy. But, you know, first and foremost, anybody who's ever, you know, worked with me knows that, you know, 
families and children have always been my passion. Yeah. Um, well, that comes out in the way that you talk about it. Well, thank you. For sure. Thank you. you know, one, one thing I'll say too, is that, uh, I, don't, I don't know if you're familiar with Thomas Sowell, but uh, he's, he's got this great line about law and it's like, there's, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. You know, so <laughs> pretty much, pretty much that sums up uh, divorce law very, very well, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, with um, with youth court, we try and work on solutions instead of trade offs. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, you know, the successes for me over the last 20 years have always been, you know, trying my best to make sure the children are happy and healthy, whether that's with their families um, or with being adopted. And mm -hmm. I've done, um, so many of those, you know, over the course of the years. Mm -hmm. And I still keep up with, with some of my, my kids that I represented in adoptions and helping their, helping families become families. Yeah. And, so. and to, and to take on this as a profession, I think, uh, you, you, you can't do without a passion. I think it is, it is, um, I mean, we, we we've talked in here about how tragic and how traumatic these, these things and be and, and even if it's not happening to you to to experience the details of those things you know and to have to go over them and to sit with these parents and deal with the emotional um uh, weight that comes with all these things because you are going to have to experience them you can't Definitely. do that if it's not with with some sort of passion or, or, or some sort of higher purpose no, driving you to that no. so multiple times um I've been asked over this election cycle, you know, are you sure you want to do this? this you know, this is your third time to run. That's a good question. Um, you know, why do you want to do this? And I'd say, you know, this is just what I feel in my heart that I need to do. Yeah. You know, um, I've been working toward this for a long time. Um, and it's just, you know, what I feel is something that I'm, I don't want to say being called to do, but it's something I've always worked toward and has always kind of been in the back of my head that, you know, I've worked on this side of the bench and now I want to take that extra step and work as the judge and maybe I can get more done um, in, from within the system instead of fighting against it. Sure. Work from the inside out. Well, I, th I think of the whole Matthew principle here, right? So, so you judge a tree by the fruit that it bears. I would say that by virtue of what you've done professionally, the success that you've had, you can have a greater impact as a judge and your past indicates that there's no reason to think that you wouldn't have that same success. So you might as well try to continue to move forward and bring and bring that perspective, bring that fresh perspective, bring those two decades plus of experience, bring the influence that you have, bring your ability to 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 foster community relationships and personal relationships to to maintain a, a balance of, of justice, but also the morality of the child and the family as well. That's right. that's what you bring, you know, and, and I think you well, should I pour so. yourself into it. I think so. You know? I like to think of that. That's exactly what I'm doing is pouring myself into, yeah. into that and to fight for, for the people that I'm representing. Um, and as a judge, I'm representing the residents of Jackson County. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming by to talk to no, me. Thank you for this having me. This has been me. fun. <laughs> I don't know about fun, but it's been, it's been lively. It's been lively for sure. All right. How do people uh, look up more, more about you? It is uh, Um dot com, And I have a full webpage. Um, they can message me. They can uh, volunteer. They can donate. And mm -hmm. I have all of my resume and everything up there that I've done over the 20 plus years of uh, that I've been practicing. Yes. Yes. 
very impressive there on on Facebook. How can they find you? It is elect Jennifer Sequel Harris for judge. Um, it is a, a public Facebook page. They're more than welcome to send messages through the page. Okay, and then um, I have my law office page okay. as well. So um, it's Jennifer Sequel Harris Legal Clinic um, is my public Facebook uh, for my office as well. Perfect. Well, again, Jennifer, thank you for thank you for stopping by. Good luck to you. Vote November 7th. No, November 8th. November 8th. My bad. Yep, 28 days today. All right. Well, good luck to you. Thank I wish you. you the best. Thanks. Thank you for having me. All right, everybody. Bye. Bye-bye. Everybody, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I certainly did. And if you want to follow uh, more and hear more, you can check us out on any of the major podcasting platforms. We're on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, everything. You can also follow us on social media. I've got a YouTube channel, so search for Shop and Chivalry. Subscribe there. We also have Instagram. Just look for Shop and Chivalry. Twitter, at Shop and Chivalry. And Facebook.com slash Shop and Chivalry. You can also shoot us an email at administration at shop and chivalry if you'd like to be on the show or suggest somebody or give more direct feedback you can also find that link on our website shop where i have all of my ramblings about the show what the show means to me that that particular episode i've got a blog other media on there as well as well as embedded players so you can play the shows and the videos for those that that have video as well so uh, again Thank you for all the love. I appreciate all the feedback. It's been wonderful. I'm having a great time. And, uh, yeah, much love. All right. See ya.